0: Ed trusted the critical race theory craze that's sweeping the nation. Episode one, going to
1: the source. It's interesting because one of my jobs—I was a social studies supervisor in Philadelphia eventually—and one of my first tasks as a social studies curriculum developer was to help write our first Holocaust uh, curriculum and. The thing that struck me is that when, you know, Hollywood came out with that miniseries on the Holocaust, how angry German youth were that they didn't know anything about this. And they, they, they were furious. They were saying to their parents, how could you not tell us this? You know, uh, I'm so ashamed that this is stuff that, you know, the part of our history and we don't even know about it. Uh, no wonder this group of people doesn't like us. Or no wonder people are suspicious of us. And I think we are, we're going to end up in this a very similar place with our young people because this group of young people, particularly I would say the, among the middle class, are not nearly as cordoned off and segregated from race. Hi,
0: this is Karen Chenoweth. And this is Tangi Reed-Marshall. We're from the Education Trust, a national education advocacy organization that works to ensure that all children get a high quality education, no matter what their background. Today, we're starting a brand new podcast, Ed Trusted which we hope will tackle a number of topics in the future. You may have heard our podcast, Extraordinary Districts, which explored the work of high-performing and improving districts that serve children of color and children from low-income backgrounds. When COVID caused school buildings to close, Tanji and I talked with many of the educators in these districts about how they were managing through the pandemic. With this new podcast, Ed Trusted, we're branching out to talk about other topics. In this first season, we're tackling a rather puzzling phenomenon that has sprung up lately and is affecting schools, school boards, and state legislatures. I'm talking about the accusation that all of a sudden, the nation's schools have been taken over by an ideology bent on racial division and the political indoctrination of children. Yeah, I'm talking about the critical race theory craze that's sweeping the nation. Protesters have descended on school board meetings with complaints that teachers are making children feel bad by either teaching or making use of critical race theory. According to an analysis by Media Matters, critical race theory was mentioned more than 1,500 times on Fox News between February and the middle of June Fox commentators have described critical race theory variously as social justice, equity, anti-racism, and a few other things. But most recently, Fox commentator Tucker Carlson described it simply as racism. Many educators, understandably, are surprised by the accusation that they're suddenly part of a cabal intent on humiliating and discriminating against white children and instituting racist practices. When the accusations about critical race theory first emerged, it was easy to dismiss the complaints as somewhat ridiculous. After all, critical race theory has been around since the 1980s, mostly in PhD programs and law schools, and is an analysis of how racism works and can be seen even if not explicitly part of the law. It's less easy to dismiss this issue now, though, after 26 states have moved in some way to restrict the instruction schools provide children, according to an analysis by Education Week. Some specifically mention critical race theory as something to be forbidden. The Idaho law, for example, specifically accuses critical race theory of exacerbating and inflaming divisions on the basis of sex, race, ethnicity, religion, color, national origin, or other criteria in ways contrary to the unity of the nation and the well being of the state of o- of Idaho and its citizens. In a future episode, we will look closely at the different laws and bills because they deserve an extended conversation and we will have episodes that examine what teachers are teaching in schools and how teachers and principals are responding to this sudden attack on their work. But for this inaugural episode, we're hoping to look at the larger picture, and we're doing so with a truly eminent scholar whose work many educators will know. Tangie, I thought I thought you'd like to introduce our guest.
2: This is an extreme pleasure of my life, and so it, it just gives me great joy this morning to um, talk about Dr. Gloria Latin billings who's a longtime professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and among other things, served as president of the American Educational Research Association. She has won more awards than Karen and I can even talk about today in, in our short time. But one thing I know educators are going to know about Dr. Billings. Number one, they're going to know about her book Dream Keepers, and they're going to know about her book Crossing Over to Canaan. They're going to also know about her article Toward a Theory of Culturally Relevant Pedagogy, which came out in 1995. And I do think some might know about her article toward a critical race theory of education that also came out in 1995. But a lot of the teachers are gonna really appreciate Dreamkeepers because it set the stage for them to begin to problematize their own practices regarding students of color with a particular emphasis on black children. And so um, it gives me just great pleasure to welcome Dr. Billings to our conversation
0: today. Thank you, thank you for the invitation. So I guess we should start with basics. Uh, Did I describe critical race theory correctly? Is that what critical race theory is?
1: Um, I think you talked about what people are talking about, but at its base, critical race theory is an attempt to explain racial disparity. You have to realize that uh, it's something that we have dealt with since before the founding of the nation. So in the 1600s, up until the mid 20th century, our explanation for disparity was, well, those people, meaning black people, were just inferior. That's the, that was the explanation. And we actually had a biological explanation. We had programs in eugenics in universities saying these are the better people. If you went to the World's Fair in St. Louis or or anywhere, you could see them ranking people. Here are the best people and here are the worst people. Finally, by the uh, mid-20th century, you have people saying this is ridiculous. There's no basis in biology for this. We can't uphold this notion. So the next wave of explanation became, well, they just don't have equal opportunity. But what we saw is that whenever equal opportunities were uh, put forth, they're rolled back. So you take something like the Brown decision. Yeah, we had it 1954, but most of our kids are still going to segregated schools. And you have a series of laws, whether it's Milliken, whether it's uh, Rodriguez, I mean, just tons and tons of legal cases that roll equal opportunity back. Affirmative action, constantly under attack to be rolled back. Uh, The Voting Rights Act, we're in the midst of rolling it back. Uh, The Civil Rights Act. So that doesn't seem to be a very robust explanation for the disparity. Critical race theorists say, you know what? What we are seeing is that something is baked into the way in which we've organized the system. This is not about individuals. This is about the fact that someone like my father could come out of World War II and want to purchase a home for his family and be told, no, you can't live in Levittown. Now, someone might say, well, that was back then, but let me talk about the ramifications of that decision. Yes, clause 25 in the Levittown home said, no one other than members of the Caucasian race could rent, lease, or live. (laughs) I'm quoting it verbatim, in a Levittown home. Levittown homes cost $8,000. My dad bought a home in West Philadelphia. It cost $8,000. Levertown Homes required no down payment. We had to have a down payment. You paid about $60 a month in, uh, in your mortgage. Okay. I didn't regret growing up in West Philly. I loved growing up in West Philly. But here's the difference. Today, that home that, we, that I grew up in is worth about $93,000. Today, the Levittown home is worth $565,000. It's not about the individual GI who bought the Levittown home. It's about a system that said, you're entitled to this and that you can accumulate wealth over time that folks who are not white cannot. So it's about the way in which the system is organized. um, and it's, it's an explanation. I'm not saying you have to buy that explanation, but I'm saying that's the way that critical race theorists see it. So, so just as a little aside,
0: when I am in Nassau County talking to African-American children, they say, and they're still steering by real estate agents in Nassau County, which is where the original Levittown was built. Right. Um, so the the... The long arm of that of those covenants is still there. Absolutely,
2: absolutely still there. Yeah.
0: Absolutely, still there. In fact, Newsday just did a big um, uh, uh, a big expose. But I had already been told by the kids. <laughs> the kids knew. <laughs> the kids knew absolutely. So, so that's what critical race theory is. It was a study. Primarily in Ph.D. programs and law schools. Tangie, you told me you hadn't heard about it till really you got into your Ph.D. program. Is exactly that right?
2: right. That is correct. Yeah. I learned about it um, through my one of my dissertation committee members who I had become close to. And she said, you know, here's something you want to study based upon your own personal you know, course of work that you're trying to uncover and understand. And that's when I learned about it. You know, I was much older <laughs> Um, because of when it happens. And, and I taught school for a long time. I've been in a master's program. I learned about critical thought through a Frarian lens, right? Which sort of dovetails and mirrors and, and sort of runs alongside critical race theory. So critical race comes out of critical thought in that you are problematizing social structure, right, overall. And I learned about that but I didn't learn about critical race theory until well into my PhD program. Um, And both of those coming together gave me a broader lens, both in my instructional practices, um, in my own research ideas, but also in how I look at systems and structures holistically, right? It offers you a set of questions to ask, how you make sense of things that seem on their surface, not to make sense, but it gives you a lens through which you can begin to break down the intractable ways in which our system operates, um, because there are int- seemingly intractable structures in
0: place. So so I'm going to say something about what you just said, Dr. Lads and Billings, and that is Really, critical race theory lets white people off the hook as individuals. I mean, white people should sort of go, oh, so I'm not responsible for racism. What I am responsible for is countering racism and racist structures. But I don't have to feel like it's my fault. And that's, I mean, I know that seems... uh. I mean that's from from a white person's perspective it's like oh we don't have to feel guilty we just have to we just have to be part of the solution as opposed to part of the problem and i think the reason i think that's an important point is because so much of the rhetoric has been around oh they're trying to make white people feel guilty and actually Critical race theory doesn't make anybody feel guilty. Is that like a bad way to think of this?
1: <laughs> no, I don't think it is at all. I mean, um, first of all, guilt is not a very useful emotion. We we can't get very much done <laughs> with it. So I say to my own students, you know, I I don't have any use for your guilt. That's not going to help us get anything done. Uh, I do want to be clear that you know, critical race theory emerges from legal studies. And it comes as a result of some scholars here at Wisconsin getting together, doing these workshops. Kimberly Grinshaw, Richard Delgado, Derek Bell. I mean, these people would meet every summer. They were doing something called critical legal studies as a way to address the fact that the law was in some ways impervious to inequity. A group of the Black legal scholars said, yeah, but it's still not explicitly about race. You know, the critical legal studies is, yeah, it's looking at some class stuff. It's looking at some gender stuff. But you know what? We got to look at race because it's it's just encoded in our legal system. So it's an outgrowth of a previous uh, movement called critical legal studies.
0: Well, that's so interesting. I mean, I was just reading some history and. If you want to just say, well, lo- legally, legally, equality was absolutely mm, uh, determined by the Fourteenth and Fifteenth Amendments, right? Legal, legally, we've we've all been equal since the Fifteenth, the Fourteenth and Fifteenth Amendments were passed. But that wasn't sufficient. It was only with the Voting no. Rights Act that actually the Fourteenth and Fifteenth Amendments were even. Enforced, and now we see the degradation of the Voting Rights Act um, through the courts and th- through the political process. So, so law is not actually a good, uh, a right. good um, <laughs> angle to take on everything, right? Which is right. part of what your contribution has been.
1: Thinking, right. through I'm trying to look at how this applies to a particular field, education. And what I find really interesting about the current discourse is these conversations about making people feel bad to which I have responded, where were you in the 1950s and 60s? Because I was feeling very bad reading Huckleberry Finn. I felt very bad reading Robinson Crusoe. I felt terrible reading Gone with the Wind. No one cared about my feelings at that moment. Now, are we going to say if we're not going to have anybody feeling bad, are we going to then begin to say, okay, these have to come out of the canon? No, you're not going to read Heart of Darkness. No, you're not going to read uh, any of these books uh, that make Black people feel bad. No. So the idea that it's okay for Black children to experience racism, but it's not okay for white children to know about it is really the challenge for me as an educator. Timothy
0: Snyder um, had a piece in the New York Times Magazine where he compared this, he actually raises an alarm about this encoding of feeling into law. And by by having laws that say that instruction shall not make children feel discomfort, and the word discomfort is used in several of the laws, um, you have now introduced real totalitarian thinking into our education system. And Timothy Snyder, for those listeners who don't know, is a uh, scholar of the Holocaust and of Eastern Europe. He knows what he's talking about when he talks about uh, uh, authoritarian and totalitarian ways, modes of operating. So his piece in the New York Times, both. both affirmed my alarm and increased it, I would have to say. But you're exactly right. How does discomfort even come in? First of all, I'm sure you tell your university students, if you're
1: not uncomfortable, you're not learning anything. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what I actually tell them is, uh, it's not my job to make you think like I think. My job is to ensure that you are thinking and I would much rather have a discussion with someone who takes a very uh, conservative perspective, but is, is well thought out and and the warrants are there for what they what the argument they want to make than someone who has a kind of knee jerk liberalism. I, I, I want you to be thinking. Uh, one of the, the, the uh, jobs I have as someone who allegedly has no jobs is that I am the uh, president of the National Academy of Education. And we have just published a report called Civic Reasoning and Civic Discourse. It's free. So anybody can go to naed.org and download that report. We started working on this in 2016 because we could see the deterioration. Of the civic discourse. We were getting reports from teachers who said, I can't even discuss certain things in this classroom. Where if I give students uh, an article that's published in the New York Times, I literally have students say, Oh, we don't read that paper in my household, and refuse to even read. So we want to make sure we get back. We're not trying to get everybody in lockstep about anything. We want people to reason. And we want them to be a part of this civic discourse because democracy depends on this. This is a much bigger issue than whether or not you like what I write. I'm retired. Supposedly. You know, yeah, allegedly. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you're not going to impact me directly. But I'm worried about that teacher in Iowa or that teacher in Florida or in Alabama who gets told, you know, you're going to lose your license or you may not be able to teach because they're actually doing their job. Right. People forget our job is the making of citizens, plain and simple. Yeah. True, we want people to be able to earn a living. We want them to develop a set of uh, knowledge and skills so that they can uh, go on and take care of themselves economically. But the primary purpose, the primary purpose, back to Thomas Jefferson, if you will, is around citizenship. Can you talk more about the civic
0: project of, of the National Academy?
1: Yes. In fact, what we wanted to do was make sure that we lifted the, the issue of civic reasoning and civic um, discourse out of, quote, the social studies. You know, we've mm-hmm. always thought, oh, that's for them to do. That's for the civic teachers. No, we're saying, no, it's for the math teachers too. It's for the arts and humanities. The idea is how do we as a uh, as a as a a field that is education, help engage in this conversation around democracy, uh, what your rights and responsibilities are and how do we deal with the tensions? There's always going to be a tension between individual rights and the right of the state that is never going to go away. Uh, as an individual, you have, a, you have a variety of choices in the society. You can choose not to attend public school. But the state says you have to be educated. Okay, So that, that tension is always there. So you can choose to go to a private school, a, a, a religious school. You can even choose homeschooling in a number of our states. Uh, but you need to be educated. That, that's something that even though the U.S. Constitution doesn't include it is, it is there and a responsibility uh, of societies. I mean, the reason that Lincoln passed the Morrill Act is he said every one of these states need to have at least one university. I mean, we've had that. That's, we've always been aspirational around education and the idea that we would kind of shrink it and limit it. And I will tell you, the one thing that I think the sort of anti-critical race theory and, and first of all, I don't even think it's critical race theory that they're talking about in our schools. But so I'm kind of using that as a—it's it, a straw man. But the sort of anti-folks uh, uh, against anything that deals with race uh, and 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 difference and disparity. Here's what they don't seem to remember. I'm gonna presume they knew it. They don't seem to remember that the one way that you get adolescents to do something. As you tell them they can't can't do do it. it. Yeah, I'm saying I've raised four children and I have five grandchildren. Uh, If you don't want them to do something, tell them they can't. I'm convinced that they are lighting Google up looking for critical race theory. What is this they don't want us to have? Mm -hmm. So they're going about it the, the entirely wrong way. But the truth of the matter is they don't really care about critical race theory. This is about the 2022 and the 2024 elections. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. When uh, the previous president first railed against it in October of 2020, I saw it as an attempt to distract from uh, where he was in the polls, right? So let's look at this thing over here. And I really didn't want to make any statement about it. One of my roles as president of NAED is that I have to make some decisions about what things we will speak out on. We've been very judicious. We decided that we will speak out on those things that have educational research implications. So the first statement that I made was when the previous president wanted to ban, oh, he wanted to ask an additional question on the 2020 census. And I contacted the the demographers in the National Academy. I said, does this have an educational research implication? They said, of course it does. It skews the data terribly. So I made a statement on that. The second thing that I wrote a statement on was when children were being separated at the borders. I contacted all of the child development people in the National Academy. I said, what's the, the research implication here? They said, listen, we have good data that suggests this will really destroy young people's lives to be separated from caring their their adult caregivers, whether they are parents or other relatives. So I've been very judicious and people came to me and said, well, do you want to write something about this this thing about critical race theory not being able to be used in federal uh, contracts? I said, I really don't want to do this because I don't want to be seen as self-serving. This is my area of interest. Um, and I don't want to give it attention. Now, what, what, I, what made me change my mind was that the uh, law professors of all the California law schools put out a statement, essentially saying, we have legal scholars who do this work, and we will certainly not uh, prohibit them from doing it. Uh, at that time, I met with the president, who was, I think, Sean Harper at the time, and Executive Director of AERA, uh, Felice Levine, and said, "Well, what do you, you know? What do you want to do?" They said, "Well, maybe we can do a joint statement." And our statement is really focused on academic freedom—that we don't get to tell uh, scholars what they can and cannot study. We ended up with over thirty signatories to that document, and I'm telling you, people—I never heard people. Opt- optometrists. I'm like, really? <laughs> They're mad about this. So. Uh, and then, in some ways, we thought it had died down in the post-election. But as you can see, uh, it's a very uh, strategic uh, attempt to move away from the fact that if you cannot win on policy, right, then what you have to do is you have to gin up a culture war. Yeah. So you have an incoming president that says, "Listen, the first thing I'm going to do is get on top of this COVID thing." Well. <laughs> he got on top of the COVID thing. People start getting shots in their arms. I mean, it just, you know, it, are, are we there yet? No, but we have seen an incredible uh, downturn. There are less cases, less serious cases. Second thing he said he was going to do is, you know, we got to do something about the economy. People are hurting. So now you get the CARES Act to go through. Now he's talking infrastructure. He pulls together a, both. Republicans and Democrats. So this, you know, whatever you think about his age, whether you think about his politics, he's actually getting some policy done and big policy. I think last week I read that uh, Biden's uh, approval rating was like 62%. In some ways, he's like hitting the right notes on a variety of things. He ends up going to Sun- Sunnyside, um, to-, to the Miami Beach area. What did he say? I'm not going down there right now because I don't want to get in the way. I don't want to distract. It's not about me. I'm going to go. So you have somebody who is a very experienced politician, knowing when to intervene, knowing what to say, not making huge gaffes, not making people go, you know, cover their mouths and go, oh my God. And so you're, you don't have any policy stuff to win on. So what do you do? You figure out what, can, what could be a hot button issue. What could be something to get people really upset? Um, and I think given what happened in the summer, uh, murder of George Floyd, the uh, the degree to which white young people were just enraged. You know, Black Lives Matter is not new. I mean, it, it we had it at, with Eric Garner in almost an identical set of circumstances. Fairly minor infraction, and somebody ends up dead and can't breathe because of the way they're being handled by the police. You didn't get the kind of heat and light around Eric Garner that you got from George Floyd. And I think part of it is, uh, as the filmmaker uh, Ava DuVernay said, we all had to see George Floyd. See, with Eric Garner, we were still working and going to the sporting events and going to parties and to the movies. But with George Floyd, we were all stuck there. And it was one of the few times she said, and I'm, this is certainly a filmmaker's analysis, she said, but we got both the, the victim and the perpetrator in the same in
2: frame. space. That's right.
1: That you literally saw that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the almost... For almost nine, nine minutes. Right. Yeah. yeah. That Which uh, Officer Chauvin just sat there. He had his hands in his pockets, um, looking away, not paying attention to the man. I mean, all of that, I think just incensed people, and probably had some implication for the 2020 election. Uh, so, given that, it's like, how do you strike back? And one of the ways you strike back is that you find something that will make people angry, even if you're distorting it. Uh, well, what, but you do it. What's interesting to me is
0: that Christopher Rufo, who's like a fairly obscure fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Um, is very open about how he um, developed this, I would call it, maybe it's a moral panic. Um, You know, he kind of walked in and said, what do you got? Like, what can I make uh, out of this? And he said, well, critical race theory, nobody knows what that is. I'll just load everything (laughs) up onto critical race theory. And... um, and, and he actually succeeded in this. He uh, it, It's really quite remarkable. He's a relatively young man, 36 or so, and he has single-handedly created this moral panic. But, of course, you don't do it out of whole cloth all by yourself. It is falling right. on fertile ground. Um, but I
2: think one of the things that people are not realizing or talking about is... We can talk about Christopher Rufo. We can talk about the former president. But what we have to talk about too is the knowledge that there is a group of people very willing and very easily riled up. Yeah, Because That's these the things don't ground. happen. Yes. That's the fertile ground. And, and, and I think there has to be a real acknowledgement that the conversation around race is used as its own weapon to keep white people in a particular sense that they're going to lose something. Um, That the minute you begin to open that conversation, it creates a very easy willingness to to adopt a, a set of principles around which you are now going to be a new victim, right? Like it just really, there has to be real conversation Around that, too, because that's
1: part of why it's done over and over and over and over and over again, because I think one one of the frightening things for me is that I had a request for an interview from a young reporter and she told me she was calling me from Burlington, Wisconsin. And I said to her, Burlington, the sun downtown. Mm -hmm. And she said, oh, excuse me, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the sun downtown. She said, I, I, I was not familiar with that. I said, tell you what, go look up Sundown and then call me back. And she called back and she said, oh, my goodness, I had no idea. I said, that's my challenge as a teacher. I, you know, for better or worse, I was a history and a government teacher, a U.S. history teacher. And I. You know, and, and in Philadelphia. So, you you know, I, I, I got the old stuff. That's right. That's, right. Know, That's I, right. The original everything's stuff. Everything's named right. Franklin. That's right. I got Independence <laughs> Hall. I got Betsy Ross House. I got the first Capitol. I mean, I got all, I'm in a living laboratory. But I, after a few years of teaching it and realizing that the way that it's laid out, it was not connecting with kids, making sense. And I primarily work with the working class, to low-income kids, I I switched it up and I started the class with a picture of Fannie Lou Hamer. So September rolls around, they get this picture of Fannie Lou Hamer. And I asked the question, does democracy work for this woman? I said, because if it does, then, then it's doing what it's supposed to do. And my argument was people like George Washington didn't need democracy. He's rich. Rich people don't need democracy. They can buy whatever they want to have, you know, want. They can have what they want. But we have to understand that something like the 14th Amendment, equal protection under the law, applies to Fannie Lou Hamer. And, you know, all of a sudden here are my students asking questions. Well, well, does it work for me? Does it work for my parents? Does it work for my grandparents? Now we have a way to think about the the sort of broad uh, sweep of democracy. Derek Bell is probably sort of the godfather of critical race theory. And one of the things that Derek Bell does that's just masterful is he creates what are called chronicles. So he tells these stories that are absolutely fanciful, that you would hope in a million years they would never happen, but he tells them to underscore principles. So there's a story he tells in one of his books, I think it's And We Are Not Saved, about what's called the Black crime cure. And these, quote, Black gangbangers stumble across a cave and they find these shiny jewel-like things. And for whatever reason, they decide to, to eat, to ingest them, to eat one. Maybe they think it's some kind of new drug, whatever. But what it does is it turns them off from doing any criminal behavior. And in the beginning, everybody's excited. You know, crime's going down, seats are safe. But then it's like, oh, well, we can't get more money for this police department. Oh, we can't spend more equipment. Oh, we can't build a new jail. Oh, and what, what Bell is showing you is that people benefit from certain things. Uh, my other favorite story that he tells is called The Sacrifice Black Children. And it's about um, black children being sent to uh, desegregate a white school district. And there's this incredible backlash and there's all of these people protesting. We don't want these, quote, N-words in our school data. You know, we, we, we've actually seen that particular movie. But what happens in this story, in this chronicle, is the the night before, the children are supposed to go to school to be bused into this white community. They all disappear, and nobody can find them. So the black parents are crying, and then where are our children? The white folk parents are celebrating. Hey, they're not coming! But a couple weeks in, the school board says, "Well, we can't afford all of these buses. Uh, we got to we got to fire these bus drivers. They got to go." Uh, these the federal desegregation money we're going to get feds say you don't you're not desegregating you know you're not getting this money so you all the people you hired to do this and all of this professional development that's going away even the neighborhood store said well you know we stocked up with all this you know extra candy and stuff because we thought these kids were coming and what happens at the end of the story the chronicle You have the white parents joining with the black parents and let's see if we can find these kids.
2: Interest convergence, finally.
1: That's an interest (laughs) Interest convergence. In other words, we we benefit from these laws, too. And so I think that even though it's fanciful, he really makes you think about, well, who actually benefits when we decide to do some of these things?
0: Heather McGee has a new book, um, The Sum of Us, where she takes the kind of the opposite where she looks at for example um we had a lot we had something like 4000 public pools in this country and when they were forced to desegregate many of them closed because white people basically cut off their nose to spite their face they'd rather not they'd fill in the swimming pools rather than go uh, to a desegregated and integrated pool. And w- what she's trying to do is show how harmful racism is to white people. It's, I mean, it's certainly harmful to black people. We know that. Uh-huh. That's, not, yeah. that's not in question. She's trying to demonstrate its harm to white people. And we'll see how far that um, argument takes us. I think it's a
1: powerful argument, but yeah i i actually 4, that's right they' did. actually put a number on it mm-hmm. and it's in the tr- yeah. it's in the trillions the cost of it of how much yeah. the, the the nation is losing because mm-hmm. it continues to do this uh again it's not about making you feel bad it's like let's just look at what are we losing by denying
0: all the, if, all the brilliance right. and opportunity to a whole segment of people and by the way once you've stratified out and said, well, some people are better than other people, that's gonna come for for anybody. Like uh, sooner or later that's yeah. gonna come for anybody who's you can't, not a billionaire. Not, that's right. It's not sustainable. You can't sustain
2: a society built right. on stratification in that well, way. Well
0: you can sustain w- it. That's the problem. Well you well the well what I mean by that is that you can't sustain I, it for the I people who are the
2: things that's notoriously built whose backs built on. Right. And and it's unsustainable given that you espouse a certain set of principles. It's intellectually
0: dishonest and unsustainable. It's dishonest. intellectually unsustainable. Right. But most of the world's history actually is built upon that kind of way anyway. Yeah,
1: Yeah, well, I think what's really interesting, I think it's Henry Louis Gates who argued in his series on Reconstruction that uh, although the North, quote, won the war, the South has won the narrative. Right. So they they maintain that narrative. But I always want to point out as a, quote, Northerner, um, that there is also northern complicity. It's not as if uh, we did not benefit from it. I was uh, receiving an award at the University of Massachusetts at Lowell, you know, lovely event. Uh, I think one of the other awardees was um, oh, uh, Roger Goodell's. Uh, He was actually getting it posthumously for his dad. I mean, it was a wonderful, lovely event, cocktails on the Merrimack River. And you see all of these um, condos. And I asked the question of someone, I said, well, I'm sure these weren't always condos because they're old buildings. They said, no. Oh, no, they were mills. And I said, really? He said, yeah, we were a mill town. I said, well, what were you milling? And he kind of hesitated first. He said textiles. I said, "Yeah, but what textile?" And then finally, it got down to cotton. I said, "Well, where do they <laughs> grow cotton in Massachusetts?" You know. And he said, "Well, we got it from the South." Ah. So not only are you able to build an entire industry off of a free labor, um, then the money gets funneled into other things like universities, like insurance companies. I mean, I think that the challenge for us in any conversation about race and slavery is that we're kind of all implicated. Nobody's off the hook.
2: One of the things I I wondered about in this whole conversation is the conflation. You started talking about it the completion between critical race theory and your work on culturally relevant pedagogy. So much work is underway right now with culturally relevant pedagogy. Um, thanks in part, and you know, you know, Paris and Limb came out with sustainability. Then Candy's coming out came out with the anti-racism. How can teachers begin to really kind of? disentangle that so that so they are not walking away from cultural relevance as they have to fight this non-battle that's a battle. That's a real concern I've been wondering a lot about.
1: So I've been just asking people to focus on the three major components of cultural relevant pedagogy. First and foremost, the student learning. That's what we get paid to do student learning. Now, how are we going to enhance student learning? Through supporting their cultural competence. But what I mean by cultural competence is not like, oh, we need a, something for this group and something for that group. That's not what I mean at all. It means allowing students to bring their, their whole selves into the classroom, what some people might call an asset-based approach, like Luis Mull talks about funds of knowledge. In other words, there's stuff you know from home. And that can come into the classroom. But as your teacher, I have an obligation to ensure that not only do we use what you bring from home, but that I give you access to additional cultures so that you become facile, that you become fluent in a culture other than your own. That means that it doesn't matter what your race or ethnicity is, because white students also need to be facile. Influent in cultures beyond their own. Uh, I always give this example of when I first came to Wisconsin, I did something that the university calls the Wisconsin Ideas Seminar. It sounds awful, right? Because it is a week-long trip of academics riding on a bus around the state <laughs> to look at those things that the state is and the university are connected in, connected to. Uh, because the Wisconsin Idea Seminar is that the Wisconsin Idea is that the boundaries of the university are the boundaries of the state. Now we say it's the boundaries of the world, right? So we, they've been doing this for over 30 years. They take a group of fairly new uh, faculty and staff, administrators, around two different places that the university connects with the, the state with. So you're always going to go to an Indian reservation. You're always going to go to a hospital. You're always going to go to a prison facility. You're always going to go to some business and industries. it be different ones for different years. So my, my trip went to Columbia Prison, which is like a Supermax. Or we went to the Oneida Reservation. But one of the places that fascinated me, because you're always going to a dairy farm, after all, we are the dairy state, was the farm. And everybody teased me. They're like, you're such a city girl. You're you're getting jazzed about the farm. I said, what you don't understand is I got to that farm. The farm had been in that uh, family for, um, I don't know, three, four generations. I mean, just been there forever. Actually, they they got the farm as payment for participation in the Civil War. But what was fascinating to me is that there were two generations on the farm at at the day that we went to visit both of whom had gone to the University of Wisconsin, graduated from the College of Agriculture and Life Science. The father, who was no longer living, had also done the same. But there were 11 interns on the farm from the Netherlands, from Tokyo, from Brazil. I mean, you name it, these people are on, because they're learning the most up-to-date dairy technique. And I said to someone, I said, this isn't a perfect example of culturally relevant pedagogy. These guys have degrees from University of Wisconsin. They're not sitting in New York on Madison Avenue working out of foremost dairies and doing, you know. No, they're on a farm. They want to come back to their community and enhance it. But they've all been around the world with these new dairy techniques, and they brought back people to teach uh, as interns. That's what I mean by cultural competence, right? So it's not just for, say, Black kids or Latinx kids. And then the third component, we talked about student learning, talked about the cultural competence. The third component is this sort of critical or sociopolitical consciousness. What I would call as a high school teacher, the so what factor, where kids say, well, why do we got to learn this? When am I ever going to use this again? We all get that question, right? So the critical consciousness is designed to help kids use what they are learning to solve the problems they are encountering. And I think we have to really be careful not to have it be our agenda. You know, as teachers, we have our own interests. You know, I've been in a ton of schools where kids are working on saving the rainforest. And I've asked the question, where's the rainforest? And the kids have said, we don't know. This is what she want to do, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about walking in a school once where a kid complained about the hat rule, where you get sanctioned for wearing your hat in the building. And this youngster said, they only do it to Black kids. The teacher said, are you sure? Or is that just your experience with you? He said, no, just they only pick the Black kids. She said, but we don't have the data to support that. And she literally formed the kids into four groups, one to interview Uh, to survey each class, freshmen, sophomores, juniors, and seniors, around whether or not they've been stopped and what what happened. Well, the data was very clear that Black and brown males were stopped much more often and that the sanction was greater. White kids would say, oh, yeah, I got stopped. They just told me to take my hat off. And, And they went on. But Black kids will tell you, no, I got a detention. Uh, I got reprimanded. I got what was beautiful is that they then took all of this information, wrote a report about what was happening around the school's hat rule and presented it to the administration. And they were fortunate enough to have a principal who says, well, this isn't right. And to bring it back to the staff and said, look, look what the data show. So here are their math skills, their literacy skills. That's the so what. So if you're doing culturally relevant pedagogy, you have to do all three of those things. And I don't think any of those things is seen as divisive. I don't think any of those things is designed to make anybody feel bad about themselves. I think it's designed to ensure that our kids engage with uh, the work that we're trying to do uh, to make sure that they're literate, that they're numerate, that they are scientifically capable, I mean, all of the things that we say we want them to do can be done in a culturally relevant way. I think that's important.
2: That's really, um, I think that's the statement, so that they can really take a deep breath as the legislatures and their, their building leaders and district leaders walk out the madness on the critical race side, but that they know to stay the course on those three critical areas, because we what's happening is that completion, because they're mm-hmm. using CRT, CRT, almost as if they're the same thing, and they're mm-hmm. not the same thing. And that's really, really important to, to think about.
0: So, Dr. Ladson-Billings, just to kind of close this out, are is there a piece of this conversation that we have not talked about that you think is critical for educators to understand. I I think we've covered an awful lot. One of the things that really worries me is that teachers will feel constrained before trying to teach a piece of history or some current events. Sometimes current events are named in some of these laws as kind of, well, if you're going to teach current events, you have to provide all the Uh, perspectives. But I worry that teachers will feel like, you know what, I just shouldn't bother. And we've already spent a hundred years with teachers saying, you know what, Uh, that's kind of a tricky subject. I'm I'm not going to cover it. I mean, my high school US history class was solely on foreign policy, and it never occurred to me until just recently it was because he didn't want to deal with slavery. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the teacher didn't want to touch that topic, so he didn't. He completely ignored
1: it. How, how are teachers going to manage this? Well, I think it's, it's important for people to understand. It's sort of like those Venn diagrams. Critical race theory is anti-racist, but anti-racism, is bigger than critical race theory. So not all anti-racism is critical race theory. Critical race theory is one way to approach anti-racism. And I think that those two have gotten sort of muddled. Uh, The the question I think that um, teachers and school districts need to be asking themselves is, what can we teach regarding slavery, regarding civil rights, regarding race and racism. Tell us what, tell us, all right? Because I think that many of these people say you can't do this, you can't do it, have no plan for what you can teach. I also want to point out that most of the places that I spend my time, the school districts that I'm in a lot, these people are overwhelmed with testing. They wish they could teach any uh, science and social studies because All they know is that the test is coming. They are just burdened by that. Um, I think the challenge is that um, these young people end up coming to the college and university very upset that things have been kept from them. They are mad. Why didn't I know this? I mean, it's like me and the woman with the sun downtown. What? I I can't believe it. I live in this town. I never knew this. Uh, So to the degree that you don't want the kind of bubbling up from the young people, because that's what got them in the streets in uh, March of 2020. Uh, They were mad. They had no idea. This is going on. So we have a responsibility to young people to answer their questions, and they will have them. And we have a responsibility to try to be as honest as we can about what has actually happened in the nation. It doesn't make the nation a bad place. I mean, some of the stuff that's been said about critical race theory is ludicrous. I mean, there's it's Marxist. No, it's actually the opposite of Marxist. Because Marx is a very structural argument. A critical race theory tends to be more post-structuralist. Um, so it's, you know, we're, we're I, I tell people that I don't like to be in these debates with people because it's like arguing with a, two-year-old about bedtime. That's an unwinnable argument. They will never see your side. Okay, so I am. <laughs> let's not do that. Let's not do that. But I do want our teachers to be able to ask important questions. Uh, I want them to be able to help their students interrogate the texts that are before them, to provide more than one explanation for something. I mean, it's one thing to read Bernard Bailyn's um, description of reconstruction, and then to read W.E.B. Du Bois, um, and then ask the question, how can these people see this so differently? You know, that's, that's the thinking we want our students to be able to do. Um, but I don't think any one teacher should have that responsibility. I think that, um, Schools and districts need to be clear about what it is that they are trying to accomplish. Uh, we, I just got an article sent to me yesterday about a school in Southern California, uh, mostly white school, losing to a mostly Latinx school in a, during the basketball season. And these white students are throwing tortillas at the Latinx students. Okay, where does that come from? I mean, that's the question that I think our students have to ask. What made you think that that was an okay thing to do? And
0: and one question I always have is, why don't the coaches just
1: stop the game and send the kids home? And I think that's the scary part of the time that we are in, that we seemingly have no guardrails. There were certain things that, you know, you can't police what people think, but you certainly uh, have people, uh, you know, we had a society that said, that's not appropriate to say. You know you you can't say things like that and and get away with it. Uh, I think we've moved so far away from that uh we've gotten to a place where uh, people th- feel like they can do whatever they want to, no matter who gets hurt in the process and that that comes from the example of our leaders. We've seen this. I mean I've been talking to people about two things more more recent things January sixth, which i tell people over and over. It's not a one-off, okay? Yes, it was shocking when it occurred, but you have to put it in the context of what has happened in this country. You go back to the Shays Rebellion, the Whiskey Rebellion. Certain people, when they don't get what they want, oh, they tear stuff up. The second has been the commemoration of the Tulsa uh, massacre. It's not a one-off. You've got almost 100 of these things happening between 1913 and 1921. Our students need to see the patterns of behavior because they would say, well, why didn't people do X? Why didn't people do Y? They didn't understand the threat under which people were living for so long. So I think the important you know, thing that, that our, our educators have to do is that they have to stand up for what is right and what is true, but they also need to know who's got their back on this.
0: Dr. Ladson-Billings, I so appreciate how you've brought us history politics education pedagogy uh more more than that language <laughs> you've brought so much you've brought uh, uh your 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 whole profession really to this conversation and i so appreciate it um i know that this will be really valuable for a lot of educators and i really thank you for that Dr. Billings, it has been my absolute distinct pleasure. I can quit work right now.
1: <laughs> All right. You're welcome. You have a good day. Bye. <laughs> All right. Bye bye.
0: So that wraps up this episode of Ed Trust's brand new podcast, Ed Trusted. Uh, we want to thank Dr. Gloria Ladson Billings for this amazing kickoff of the podcast. I also want to thank everyone at Ed Trust whose works supports this podcast. Mike Patillo of Tonal Park records and edits the podcast. Our theme music is by Joser. This is Karen Chenoweth. This is Tangi Reed Marshall. See you next time.